right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get a Grip JTCC podcast. I'm Gabby Hesse. I'm a Tennis for America fellow working here with my counterpart, Ava Todd, at the JTCC. And this whole program was started by the Intercollegiate Tennis Association through a new initiative to give back to the sport through community engagement and involvement. And so talking with us today is Dave Mullins, the Managing Director of Community Engagement and Coach Empowerment at the ITA, who uh, was actually played a big part in hiring us in the, in the whole process. So um, Dave, thank you for being on the call with us today. And if you just want to start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to be in that role at the ITA. Sure, Gabby, it's great to uh, be with you guys. The shoe's on the other foot. I was interviewing you guys a few months ago for, for the roles you're currently in. So hopefully I'll do as good a job as you guys did uh, back in February. But um, yeah, uh, where to start? I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. I uh, was one of the top juniors there. Um, not a lot of tennis going on in Ireland. So if you want to continue your, your uh, career, you really had to come to the States on a tennis scholarship. So I was fortunate uh, back then we didn't have the internet. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, there was no Facebook or anything like that, but I did have a few friends who, who played over in the States and they were able to get me some connections. I ended up at Fresno State, California, had four great years there, studied business and finance. I uh, was an All-American my senior year. Um, hoped to play a little bit professionally after that. I did that for about six to eight months, ran out of money quickly and uh, realized I wasn't going to have much of a career. So um, I moved into the world of finance then because my undergraduate work, work was in business and finance and worked on the mercantile exchange in Chicago. Absolutely hated every minute of it. It was <laughs> the worst time of my life and uh, really made the, the decision that I wanted to be in college coaching. I, I, I knew during my college career that I wanted to be a college coach, but societal pressures and all the rest of it, I went down the finance road. So I was in Chicago, fortunately, the DePaul men's job opened up and um, I got the job there. Uh, they weren't paying me a lot of money. And, and the first few months there, my wife, Laura, became pregnant with our first son, Liam. And I had to make some hard decisions. It was going back to the world of finance um, or it was finding another college coaching job that could pay me a little bit better. So um, fortunately, could stay in Chicago. The Northwestern Women's Assistant position role opened up and um, I got that. And uh, kind of the rest was history. I was three years there, uh, then went on to be the head women's coach at the University of Oklahoma for eight years. And then uh, a great opportunity opened up back in Ireland. Uh, myself and my wife had always talked about moving back to Ireland for a few years, exposing our boys to the culture back there, um, spending more time with my family, something I hadn't done for 18 years. Um, and uh, we took the opportunity just kind of on, on uh, a bit of a flyer, really. Didn't really know what we were getting into, but felt like the time was right. And if we didn't do it, then we'd never do it. So spent three years back there as the director of uh, sports at a, um, a club back there, Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club, which is kind of tennis, squash, swimming, um, gym, fitness classes. So was kind of overseeing all those different sports and coaches and things like that. And also uh, sat on the board of directors uh, for the Irish Tennis Federation, um, broke the world record, Guinness world record for the longest doubles match in history, 60 hours, 24 minutes. So very proud of that. Um, and then um, we, we thought we'd be there for about two to three years. I, I was uh, 
sure, I wanted to be kind of on the business side, the administrative side of tennis. And then the position opened up at the ITA um, about, I guess, 15 months or so ago. Applied for the job, got it, and uh, have been now at the ITA for a year. So I was, uh, you introduced me as the managing director for community engagement, coach empowerment. I've recently uh, lost those other parts. I'm just managing director now of the ITA. So I definitely, obviously, still very involved in, in Tennis for America, overseeing that project as we start thinking about year two of that, even though you guys have just started. Um, I also uh, focus a lot of my energies on coach education and also um, in the coach governance space. I spend a lot of time. But really, the ITA is a small organization. We wear, wear many hats. We do very, many different things. So it's kind of all hands on deck. Nice. Ava, you want to take it away? Yeah. <clears throat> um, thank you, Dave, for giving us some of the background. You definitely have experience in a lot of different areas in the tennis industry, which I think makes you a great person to talk about the topic of COVID-19 in relation to college tennis and kind of how those two areas are, are coming together in this difficult time. Um, the first question that we had along the lines of that topic for you is what you've seen going on with college tennis this year in terms of COVID, kind of how different programs are handling the pandemic, the decisions that are being made in terms of um, budget cuts, programs being cut, fall seasons being put on hold, and kind of the different approaches that you've seen from an ITA perspective toward the pandemic. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There's, there's a lot of answers to that question. I mean, it's similar to how, um, you know, uh, decisions made by government as well, not, not to be political here or anything like that, but it, it, it is very much kind of a free-for-all. There, there is no uh, common approach. I mean, I think in recent, in recent weeks, the, the conferences have maybe done a better job of, of really coming together. They've made some decisions about football, obviously. They've made decisions about, um, you know, fall championships and fall play. Um, haven't really got into the spring yet, but it seems like there's, there is more cohesion now in how to approach this, this pandemic. I think what happened was that in, in March when, you know, the NCAA canceled their championships, basketball went down, obviously all the other sports went down. We were kind of li living in these two week increments where we thought decisions were going to get made. And, and every two weeks would pass and the, the can would get kicked down a little bit more. And I think even in March, April, May, probably even in June, we were still very hopeful of fall sports, you know, colleges reopening um, to the full extent. Uh, I don't know if we were deluding ourselves, but I, I think we were, we were trying to be optimistic and hoping that, that things were going to come together. And, and, and they never really did. And, and it probably wasn't until July that, we realized that no things things are here to stay and and I think a lot of people now are hopeful for January um, I'm not as hopeful as I'd like to be unfortunately I think I've I've learned my lesson a little bit um, obviously it relies a lot on, on a vaccine coming out but even with that um, you know statistic I heard the other day is 50% of Americans won't take a vaccine um, you know also how do you administer a vaccine to 7 billion people around the world. I mean, it, it, so it, it, even if we get something in January, it's going to be many months before we get to that herd immunity. So I do have a lot of concerns about the whole uh, academic year, uh, whether it's from an academic perspective or a tennis or just college athletics in general. I think we're, uh, we're in for a long road here. So, um, so hopefully that answers your question. If you want, to, want me to expand more, let me know. Yeah, that yeah. was great. Yeah, um, 
we've also been hearing a lot, I know in the tennis community about different college teams getting cut and it seems almost every week there's a couple more added on and as as part of the ITA, um, I know you're obviously that's not what you're you're hoping for. You're hoping for things moving in the other direction. Um, but as a tennis community, as fans, as players, as you know, former college players, alumni, how can the community come together to support these college teams and help avoid these cuts of programs that really are are hurting us at this time yeah it's it's been a really tough time i mean uh, you know other than the coaches the alumni and players of those programs i think the ita takes it uh, you know not as hard as those guys but but really it's a really difficult time for us i mean every friday we're bracing ourselves for what cancellations are coming out because what these athletic departments do is they bring their coaches into the office 9 a.m on a friday morning and they try and do a news dump of the story, you know, 3 p.m. that day. And uh, it's pretty consistent theme. I haven't seen any programs being cut on a Monday or Tuesday. It's Friday every time. So every Friday rolls around. I know people are excited about the weekend. We're, we're not, you know, we're, we're actually dreading it. I mean, to see uh, Iowa men's tennis being canceled last Friday was, I mean, that's, the, I don't want to say it's a wake-up call for everybody, but to, to know even the Power Five programs aren't safe. I mean, that, that's where it really hits home. I think some, some uh, less well-known programs, you know, people can kind of get on, on with their day, but when they see a cancellation like that, it's like, wow, this, this is serious, and this is, uh, it's, it's all hands on deck. So your question was, you know, what can the community do to support? I mean, that's where also we're encouraging our coaches to really try and get out in front of, of this, recognizing that, that nobody is safe and, and where are the areas uh, in your program that are maybe a little bit weak, you know, have you networked with people in your community? Because sometimes the, the, the program gets canceled and then the coach is calling up, you know, a high net worth individual donor alumni out of nowhere. And, and the, the coaches maybe been there for six, seven years, and then they're asking this person for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's, you know, you've got to, you've got to develop that relationship, you know, um, a long time before, before it gets to that moment where your program's being cut. So if there are people out there that are, are passionate about college tennis, if they are, you know, alumni of a certain institution, if they can pick up the phone and, and, you know, start developing a relationship with that coach, the coach may not know that they're out there and that they're a supporter of their program and start developing that and, and seeing what they can do to help. There's so many different ways. I mean, the biggest way if we have a spring season is just going out and supporting college tennis matches. I mean, just, just having people in the seats engaging. Firstly, it's an, it's a much better experience for the student athletes. As you guys well know, it's a lot more fun playing in front of, hundreds and thousands of, of, of fans rather than, you know, three people and, and their dog. So you've got to make sure that, that you're going out and you're trying to stay as long as you can. The other thing we see is people stay for the doubles point and then they go. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about um, our format through the years and, um, you know, we made changes several years ago to shorten it. I mean, the average length now is two, two hours and 30 minutes, but you can get some matches that go past four hours still. 
um, and maybe that is too too long. But if people can go and 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 be part of of the dual match experience, that that's huge. And then there's other things. Obviously, there's donations that can be made. But a lot of coaches are also they're always looking for help. I mean, they're looking um, to delegate certain things to people, whether it's it's community engagement or or social media or the marketing stuff or you know match day. I mean, sometimes people think it's it's you know. That yes, at the power five, the top level, they have staff, they have support staff, but most colleges don't have that. You know, they have it in their head that every college is Florida State or Oklahoma or UCLA. It's not. They they don't have a lot of resources. So um just contact your coach, see what you can do to help. Um and and uh if you're passionate about tennis, you're passionate about college tennis in your community, there's so many different ways you can work together to grow tennis in your community through the college system that's great that's a great answer if you want to talk ask about the circuit and then we can jump to the setback versus opportunity question yes um so another challenge that the tennis community has been facing during the pandemic is how to find ways to play tennis safely and still hold events that keep people safe um, from COVID and, and practice social distancing and all of those important things. And so Gabby and I as Tennis for America fellows received some information from you all in the ITA about the upcoming fall circuit, which uh, you are partnering with the UTR to put on starting in September. So we thought this was a really good example of, of ways to try to keep people playing tennis, whether college players or otherwise. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about that event and any other events that you know of or ideas for how to play tennis safely during this time? Yeah, the, the ITA has really tried to take a, a leading role in that. And, and you guys are familiar with our summer circuit that have been going on for, for decades and, and has grown uh, over the years. Uh, we didn't obviously get to host the, the 60 events that we had planned this summer, but I think we ended up with about 28 or 30, which was, was incredible and far more than, than we thought sitting here in, in May and June. So really just, I think I said in, in one of my previous answers, it was kind of July where it hit us that this isn't going away, this isn't changing. So that's where we felt like we needed to pivot quickly and try and offer something to college tennis players who are going to be sitting at home um, you know, even if they're on campus, a lot of them aren't going to be able to compete. Um, so we have to find, uh, you know, uh, unattached events for these players to play in. And that's where the full circuit just made a lot of sense. We've had success with the summer circuit. Why not extend it for a few more months um, and, and extend it to more places around the country? So I think we had about 200 applications. We were, we were shooting for 100. So oh. to get 200 is, is, is fantastic. Yeah. And um, um, I think uh, 123 or so of those were, were unique sites. So several of them had applied to do host two, three, four events over the next several weeks. Um, so we're, yeah, we're, we're very confident that they're going to go ahead. Many of them aren't not happening on college campuses because the, the college campuses are closed or the courts are closed. They're, they're not open to outside visitors. So it's been trying to get our college coaches to partner with somebody in their tennis community, a tournament director, um, or a coach in their community, uh, that is, is willing to host an event like this, recognize that we've, we've established, um, success, you know, we've, during the, some of the worst times with COVID during the summer, we've managed to pull off 30 tournaments or so. So I think they know that they're, they're engaging with, with the ITA and UTR who have a lot of experience in this, have had a lot of success. 
and um, we ask that they they hold true to the to the kind of restrictions or limitations that we're, we're asking, such as mask wearing and social distancing at these events. So I think tennis has shown that it is, you know, it is an effective socially distancing sport. Um, obviously, you have to be careful with, with how many people you have in a facility and the size of the facility. Um, but these, we expect these draws to be a little bit smaller. So, so kind of 16 draw sizes, maybe 32 do it over two days, all outdoor uh, events. I think we've had one or two maybe applications for indoor events. Um, we'll see how that goes. But this is, might be something that we continue through next you know, spring because we don't know what the dual match season holds. So um, I guess just continue to watch this space and, and see what we, uh, we put out there over the next few weeks. But for right now, our focus is very much on this fall circuit event and then also our, our regional events, again, which you guys are familiar with. Most of our regions have cancelled. Um, NAIA divisions seem to be the only ones right now that have been kind of given the green light to keep pushing forward. Um, but most of our other divisions, the regions are cancelled and, and we're expecting more of them to come, unfortunately. Nice. <laughs> All right, so I guess we're, are we in month six of the pandemic or are we still in five? I feel like time is. Feels like five years. Six. Yeah, six. <laughs> approaching six. So as we we're heading into our sixth month of the pandemic, I know you spoke earlier about it was kind of a two week at a time process as we were seeing the initial effects of COVID. But now that we're, you know, we've experienced some setbacks, we've taken, um, some steps forward in terms of planning safe social distancing tennis events, like you mentioned, but what's, what's kind of your mindset and the ITA's mindset now is COVID been more of a setback or an opportunity for us to address the weaknesses in the sport and make the most of it? Yeah, I, I guess we're looking at it for, from both sides. Uh, I mean, just personally, uh, you know, coming from a finance background, I've studied bubbles, you know, and, and whether it's the tech buzz bubble or the housing bubble, you know, these things have always interested me. And, and in, you know, 2010, 11, 12, um, I felt like we uh, in college sports were moving into a bubble. And honestly, I'm surprised that the bubble hasn't burst before this. I don't think anybody was anticipating a global pandemic was going to burst that bubble. Um, but, but it was coming whether it was 2020 or 2025, it, it was coming. Just the, just the expenses are not sustainable. You know, the amount of money that every year to, to keep up with your competitors, the arms race, as they call it, it just, it, it was going to come to an end at some point. So obviously the setbacks are, are losing all these college programs, um, not just in tennis and in, in other sports. It's just absolutely heartbreaking to see those opportunities being taken away from future generations of, of student athletes and current, obviously, as well, and their coaches uh, and just the void that's going to leave for, for a, lot of, uh, a lot of young athletes going forward. Um, so, so those are the setbacks. The opportunities are, do we have an opportunity now to reinvent what college sports is all about that recognizing that it has got a little bit out of control and that more isn't necessarily best uh, you know better i don't believe that i mean i played at fresno state in the late 90s we strung our own rackets we got four pairs of shoes you know um we traveled in a van 12 hours sometimes um you know it, it wasn't and I felt like I had a better experience than the athletes I coached in 2010 to 2016 or whatever the range you want to say. 
Um, and, and I think there's an opportunity for us to go back to the things that really matter, that it's about these opportunities. It's about, you know, coming together as a team. It's not supposed to be all comfort. It's not supposed to be easy. Um, you know, there should be some discomfort involved uh, to help these young, young people grow. I mean, I grew tremendously from my, my student athlete experience because it was difficult, not because it was easy, not because it was comfortable. So I'm hoping that the powers that be, the NCA, you know, these, these big conferences uh, reevaluate what their priorities are. And, and is it really all about winning? You know, maybe in some sports it is. And, and maybe, you know, that's definitely a part of it. I don't want to uh, reduce it, um, you know, to say that that winning isn't important. It is, but where does it fit? And, and do we always have to one-up each other um, because there, there's a limit to that, you know, and, and so I think we've seen that limit now and, and I'm hoping that some of the issues are addressed. And my concern is that we just address them minimally, like little decisions here or there rather than big, bold decisions that will, nothing's guaranteed, but hopefully guarantee the safe passage of, of college athletics for decades to come. Great answer, yeah. Awesome, yeah, I think that's a really good perspective to have in mind. Um, so we had one more question for you, Dave, kind of to tie back this topic to the JTCC and the work that Gabby and I are doing every day. So we have a lot of players, high school players and younger at JTCC right now who are high performance and have the goal of eventually playing in college, whether D1, D2, D3, and what advice would you give to these players in terms of navigating the college search and college recruitment and kind of um, the expectations or approach that they take to that process given the unusual circumstances that, that COVID has provided? Yeah, there's, there's a lot there for sure. And there's still so many unknowns. Um, I mean, even with uh, eligibility, I think most of your listeners will know that the tennis players from last spring were awarded another year of eligibility. Um, and, you know, that's going to trickle down for several years to come. I have, I have a 15 year old boy who's in a sophomore year. Uh, he wants to play uh, college soccer, not, not tennis. Uh, we'll say that for another podcast, but he wants to play, uh, play college soccer. And, and so we're starting to have these discussions because it looks like, um, all the um, uh, fall athletes are also going to get that year of eligibility as well moving forward. Uh, and soccer is a fall sport. So, you know, my advice to, to him has been, you know, understanding that there's going to be fewer opportunities out there and, and coaches are going to be um, even less, you know, I, I they're, they're going to be a lot stricter with their criteria moving forward. So whereas in the past, they may have been willing to overlook a few things or, or here or there, or, um, you know, spend a little bit more time thinking about like if somebody has a, a poor demeanor on the court or something like that, they may take the time to try and get underneath the surface of, of why are they acting that way on the court? And, you know, is this somebody I can work with and take more time? But when they have all these student athletes out there and they have, there's fewer opportunities and everybody's going for the same things, they're probably not going to spend as much time on that athlete to try and understand them um, at that deeper level, if that makes sense. So, so I think 
there, there's a maturity level that these kids are going to have to find a little earlier than I would maybe like. I think, you know, it's simple things like how do they present themselves? You know, what, what's their haircut? You know, what, what is their demeanor on the court? Or do they have good body language? Um, you know, I think coaches are going to be looking at, at all these little details a little bit more than they have in the past. So, so these young student athletes need to recognize that. They need to recognize that they have to go above and beyond. And so they want to start the process, um, you know, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, they want to be thinking about, you know, shooting their videos. How do they look on video, play around, you know, not just take one, one uh, college video and, and good, it's good to go. I couldn't be bothered doing that again. It's too much effort. It's like, no, start taking some time now to play around with what court are you going to use? What are you going to wear? Who are you going to play? How are you making sure that it's, it's a good competitive, um, you know, drilling session or, or match play session um, and, and getting all your ducks in a row and same with the academic side of things as well. I mean, it's just, again, coaches are going to be looking at that. Yes, they might be able to get you in with a lower SAT score or lower GPA, but when they're choosing between, you know, 20 players instead of eight players now, they're probably going to go with the kid that has the higher GPA who's established themselves kind of a little, uh, maybe just being a little bit more mature. Coaches are going to take a lot less risk than they did in the past, I guess is my summation of that long answer. Do you think they're going to start recruiting more for character than maybe actual skill in some cases? I, I don't know that that's the case. I think that they're going to look for it all, Gabby. They, they want it all. They want somebody with a high skill level, good talent, great work ethic, and also has phenomenal character. And that's what I'm saying. When, when, those, when those opportunities are limited, then yes, the coaches can actually strive for that. They can because there's just less opportunities and there's more players out there. So, so I think young players need to be very aware of that and you know, be very conscious of what decisions they're making. I know it's a tough transition now to this virtual schooling and it's easy to let those school, you know, grades slip and, and not turn in those assignments and take it less seriously. But that's going to catch up with you in the next couple of years when you start that recruiting process. So just, just, you have to be on your game. <laughs> you have to be on your game. You know, I, I hate to, I don't want to put pressure on young players, but if that's truly their, their goal and that's what they want to do, it's just accepting the fact it sucks. I get it. It sucks. There's going to be less opportunities. There's less, there's less college tennis programs out there, you know, with each passing week, um, you know, you know, there's probably going to be reductions in scholarships potentially at a lot of institutions as well. So just accepting that fact you know, here sooner rather than later and getting to work and just, you know, crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's and just really committing yourself to this process if it's what you want to do. Okay. Good. Great. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. And Ava okay. and Gabby, great job. You guys killed it. So <laughs> thank you. Excellent. Awesome. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. 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 Thanks for inviting me on. If I can help or anybody at the ITA, just let us know, um, you know, especially around the fall circuit, if you want an update later in the year, or if we decide to do a spring circuit or something like that, whether it's me or somebody in the championship staff, we're always, always willing to help. Just let me know. Sure. And we'll send you a link to this episode when it's out. Okay. Cool. Thanks yeah. so much, Dave, for your time. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank it's great to time. see you guys. I'll see you guys later in the week. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Nice to see you guys. See you Thank later. You. Bye, 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 bye. Bye.